I'm excited about this message. I really am a wonderful time. Even yesterday, I was, I was just listening to music all day long, it seems like, and I was studying and reflecting, and I got up early this morning. Great, because the one benefit of early morning runs now, you can catch the sunrise. There's a great sunrise. I took a, a shot of it as I was up this morning, just coming over the hills and thinking about the greatness of God and the God that is worthy to be trusted. Do we all agree, agree with that? God is worthy to be trusted. So why don't you pray with me? We're going to look to the word of God and ask for his blessing. Father, thank you for this time that we have to come to you to hear your word. We pray that it might um, touch our hearts. We would be changed by it in Christ's name. Amen. Look with me to Isaiah chapter 37. Isaiah 37, this is part five in our series on the trustworthiness of God, part five. We've been going through chapters 36 to 39, and we find ourselves here in 37, really 8 through 20, and I'm going to have to go back a little bit and look at um, 8 through 13 uh, to set uh, the, really the context, the immediate, very immediate context for the focus of this lesson which is really going to be verses 14 to 20. And so I just want to read that for you, verses 14 to 20, Isaiah 37. And it communicates, Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to all the words of Shennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands. And they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from the hand, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Amen. That's a wonderful prayer, isn't it? And we want to learn from this prayer. You know, um, several weeks ago, you know, I asked um, in one way I've been stating this differently throughout. Uh, why at times do we wonder whether or not theology and historical narratives are relevant for life? And I think here we are in part five. I'm hoping that we have concluded that they are relative for life. Uh, relevant, that is, for life. I think we all learned our lessons in we see the value of narratives, and we see even the value of this particular narrative here to our lives, at least I'm hoping. Um, for me, it's been intriguing, and I would absolutely say edifying for me to be on this journey with you as we've looked at this great passage of Scripture. And, and although this passage may be familiar, uh, these lessons should never be familiar to us because they're the core, they really are the core of our Christian life. You trust in God. That's the beginning of our Christian life. I mean, each of us wake up each morning and we face the question of trust. Will I trust God this morning? And some of you may perhaps need to answer a call. This an initial call of trust. That is, I trust you with my very life. I give you my life. I make you. I call out to you. I recognize your lordship over my life. Save me. And then once we've come to that point of trust, that is trusting Christ to save us, then we begin this journey, which is called sanctification. And every day we're learning how to trust God more. And we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are times when we face our own trials and tribulations, if you will, and our trust is attacked. Will we trust God? Will we trust self? Will we trust someone else? And we are faced as well with all sorts of uh, daily battles. And these daily battles that vie for our affections and our commitment. The world wants us to trust it in some way. 
The world wants us to have our affections directed towards it. And our affection should only be directed towards the living God. Do you agree with that? He is the only one that is worthy of our commitment, of our affections, of our heart, and of our worship. We find ourselves in an increasing battle in this world system that uh, seeks to demonstrate its disregard of our God and of our teachings, of our faith, and of our values. That's a daily battle for us, and we see it increasing every day. I just saw someone posted um, a commercial by Sprite, and it was uh, just the extreme level of saying that they have a support for the LGBTQ um, community. And this, the relationships that they were showing um, as two young women and one young woman who is in the relationship is often is the case. One is the more um, masculine in the relationship that she was actually not. And I only say this, I thought, should I even communicate it to you? Because does it fall into that category where Paul says there's certain things, don't even talk about them. But I'll just say as she was preparing herself to go out, she was uh, making her, what God has made her natural, less obvious so that perhaps one could look at her and, and wonder, is she a woman or is she not? And one scene where it shows uh, a father who has taken his son to a parade and that is experiencing or promoting their pride and their decisions, and there is this caption that says, and here is this father, and he's looking at his son as he grabs the hand of another man, and he walks to this parade, and they show his face, and there is this, he's a good actor. Because in his face was a sense of pride, and it was pride when you allow those to be free or when you allow those that you love to be free. And I thought, no, that's not freedom at all, is it? Because Jesus Christ said when the son sets free is what? It's free indeed. That's enslavement. I'm saddened by that. I'm saddened by the deception. And there's some people that say that and they become angry at them and they want to castigate them and they want to speak all sorts of evil against them. I'm initially saddened. What a soul that is lost. See, our world is fighting against us. And now, even if someone were to take what I've just said in these last 45 seconds and they were to air it, would they say, well, that's a reasonable pastor who is holding to his faith? Would they say that? What would they say, perhaps? What do you think they might say? I'd like to hear from what do you think they would say? He's a hater. Exactly. That's what they're going to say. No, it's holding fast to the word of God. And let me make this statement since I did say that. Our our faith is more than that. Do you understand that? Because there's some people that's all they ever talk about. It's what's wrong with the community and what's wrong with society and what's wrong with the LGBTQ community. That's all you ever hear from them. And some of these people, if you would ask them, tell me about your personal relationship with God, um, I don't even think they would have an answer sometimes. Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean, there are people that you talk to, even when it comes to other matters of theology, and at times I've been concerned. I say, friend, every time I've talked to you, I hear nothing but you and your concerns with evangelicalism or your concerns with liberalism. Do you have any affections for God? Do you have any thoughts about God? Do you have had any heart for the lost that are out there? Do you fall on your knees for your neighbor? Do you witness to the lost that are around you? And see, that is a breathless Christianity. It really is. Yes, we stand up and we can speak against these matters, but that's not all that we do. It is speaking the good news, and it is living out the good news, and it is people looking at us and saying they are different. They trust in God. Even when they're faced with difficulties or trials or heartaches, there's something about them. What's different about them? That's how we should live our lives. You know, two weeks ago, I proposed that um, in our earlier section that there were five responses that people who rely on God should demonstrate. 
And this morning, I want us to consider the prayer of Hezekiah from verses 14 to 20. And there is a lesson that we can learn from his prayer. Let me review some things for you. Notice what we've already said. First was the character of those who rest in a trustworthy God. We noted that from chapter 36, 1 to 3, and we cross-referenced 2 Kings. Then there was a confidence offered by a trustworthy God. We noted as well the trials of those who rest in a trustworthy God. Yes, uh, we trust in him, but we know life is full of trials and difficulties, and the Assyrians represent that trial. And I said to you several times before, we are not fighting uh, a band of pagans. Uh, we are not fighting an Assyrian army. We're not surrounded uh, by a great um, warlike people, but we are facing battles. Now, what we want to look at even this morning is this great prayer in 14 to 20 and see what we can learn from it. But before we do that, I do want us to go back for a moment. Go back with me and look at verse 6 of chapter 37. Isaiah gives the word to Hezekiah. You shall say to him, he gives it through the messengers, don't be afraid because of the words that you have heard by which the servants of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me. So God is speaking. Here's your encouragement. Don't be afraid. We consider that in fact this command that we see throughout scripture time and time again, don't fear, don't fret. And here is something that is really interesting here. God, in one sense, is condemning, ridiculing even the Assyrians when he says in verse 6, don't be afraid of the words that you've heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. And even his wording, when he says his servants, is very interesting. Uh, Even in the wording, in the language, it's it's a word that refers to young men or boys or youths. And some translations might even say, don't worry about these lads. They mean nothing to me. Um, He doesn't even refer to them as men. He doesn't refer to them as warriors. He says, these are just lads. They're just youths. Um, They have no significance to me whatsoever. Don't fear them. I am with you. And of course, what he states in verse 7, behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. And some would wonder, what was this rumor? Was it the rumor eventually when God would strike down 185,000 Assyrians and he would hear about it because Shennacher himself never came to Jerusalem and he would hear about it and then he would go back? Or was it a rumor that the Egyptians were now trying to mount an attack against him and he would go back to his land? I think that probably favoring the idea that eventually once I defend this city and I strike down the Assyrians, he will hear about it and he will say, ah, I'm defeated. And he's going to go back to his land. And he says, I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And we know, as we'll see later on, that that in fact is going to happen. And I'll just tell you now what occurs. He goes to the house of his God, Nimrosh. And then what happens? His two sons come to him and they kill him by the sword and they escape. And that's an interesting contrast as well. Think about it. Because what we're going to learn here in this episode is Hezekiah goes to his house, the house of the Lord, and then there is victory. Sennacherib goes to his house, the house of Nimrosh, and there's defeat and there's death. So the contrast is even demonstrated even there. Now, but there's a temptation that sometimes we face when the Lord is calling us to trust him. Notice verses 8 to 13, what we see there. In verse 8, it says, Then Rapshika returned and found the king of Assyria fighting at Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. And the battle is going forth. It says in verse 10, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, again, the statement, haven't you heard what I've done to all the lands? I've destroyed them all. He states it again in verse 12. Uh, Gozen and Haran and Resev and Eden and Talasad, he says. How about the king of Hamath and Arpad? And he, he again says, I'm the all-powerful king. Now, what has happened here is interesting. He makes this statement that now... 
that you've gotten this word from the Lord and think about the timing of it. And what I want us to see is the timing. So Hezekiah has sent for Isaiah. Isaiah sends him a message. And now immediately after that message from the Lord, there's a temptation. Here's encouragement and then temptation. And sometimes life can happen that way, can't it? We find ourselves progressing in our faith and we find ourselves encouraged and then there's a temptation. This is exactly what happens here. And maybe even Rabshakeh or even Shanakar himself realizes that Isaiah has spoken to them and he wants to undermine the encouragement that God has given them. And remember, when we say encouragement that God has given, the Lord has spoken to Isaiah and he's speaking to the people of God. When we open our word itself and the word of God tells us something about who we are and our future and our God, the world is always seeking to undermine that. It wants to undermine the word of God, does it not? It is not in support of it. It wants us to doubt it. And that's why it's so sad that even some of our institutions today that would call themselves places that train men for the ministry doubt the word of God. They question inerrancy. They question infallibility. Then ultimately, they're questioning the sufficiency of God's word because we know here is our source of direction. I mean, think about it. Here he is. He finds him at Libna. This is the last city before they would come to Jerusalem. And then what does he do? He reminds them again that, wait, we have had this great success for over a half a century. So the cities that he's naming were not just immediate victories. This is going all the way back to Sargon II, saying that for half a century, we have been successful in wiping out all the people. Why do you think that you're going to stand? And just think about the abject arrogance of Shennacherib. I mean, before he had called the people to question Hezekiah, don't question or don't rely on Hezekiah. Don't trust in him. You're going to be doomed if you do. And now it's a direct statement against God. He says, don't trust God. This is what the world says. Don't trust God. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 32. And we briefly looked at this before when we were setting the context. But again, I want you to notice something. God has spoken encouragement to them. And now temptation comes. And notice as well, an important verse, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 1, it says, after these acts of faithfulness. Now, if you were to stop right there, if you were to stop looking at your Bibles, just listen to what it said. After these acts of faithfulness, Hezekiah's kingdom was blessed. Does it say that? No, it doesn't. After these acts of faithfulness, then God restored all the treasures and and all the lands, and there was great blessing throughout the land. It doesn't say that, does it? After these acts of faithfulness, what? Shennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. I mean, that's important for us to understand that sometimes we have acted faithfully with integrity and then tribulation comes. Um, We can be faithful, but yet God still in his sovereign plan allows difficulty to come to our lives. I mean, there are a myriad of texts and other examples that dispel the immaturity of those who would propose that if you were to just have enough faith and if you were to just be faithful enough, then life will be sweet and conflict-free. Well, that's not true. See, that's the prosperity perversion. In one sense, I've stopped calling it prosperity gospel. I don't even like associating gospel with it. It's a prosperity perversion. It contradicts the very life of Christ. I mean, think about the life of Christ. The design of his life was to live perfectly, honestly, with integrity, and then be ridiculed and be persecuted and die, even to the point of death. Absolute faithfulness. But a design was what? Suffering and pain. I mean, think about it. It it contradicts the promise of the godly life. In 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? What does it say? Persecuted. 
And so here is persecution that has come. Now, in part, we can understand that overall it is because of some of their actions of the past. Um, there has been reform under Hezekiah, but nonetheless, God is in his sovereign hand using it to mold his people and ultimately we'll see to glorify his name. Now we look at, if you will, verse 14. Let's unfold this prayer. And really the whole section is really beautiful. The prayer of those who rest in a trustworthy God. This is what we see in verses 14 to 20. And it unfolds this way. And it's a very interesting structure. First, we'll see the retreat of those who trust. We see that in verses 14 and 15. And then we see the reverence of those who trust, verse 16. And then there's the request of those who trust, verse 17. And then in verse 18 and 19, the recognition of those who trust, and then the resolution of those who trust. And the passage is set up that way in a structure, and a chiastic structure that is moving from we retreat, then there's reverence, and there's a request. Now that that request is made, there's also a recognition that takes place, and then an ultimate resolution. And this is what we want to understand from this great prayer and this interaction that Hezekiah has from the Lord. And then perhaps we can, in looking at these five elements of his prayer, learn how to pray and learn how to trust God when we are faced with difficulties in life as well. So the first one, let's consider the retreat of those who trust. Verses 14 and 15. Notice what it says. Then, after this temptation comes... Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He prayed. So the question is, Hezekiah prayed. What is prayer? I mean, what is prayer? We may say, well, yes, sure, I understand prayer. Obviously, prayer is, is me talking to God. I mean, prayer is setting one's heart on the Lord, and it's recognizing God for all that he is and all that he has done. Prayer is intervening for the needs of others and inter intervening for the needs of others that are maybe your, just your neighbors. When I say just your neighbors, people that you may not know intimately, but according to scripture, they in fact are your neighbor. I would think that some of you, once you got that news from Thursday morning, that you have been praying. I mean, this is close to home, is it not? How many of you live in Sagas? Yeah. How many of you live in Santa Clarita, Canyon Country area? A number of us. And you hear that's not far from where we live. And you hear this story again, and your heart goes out to those people, and you must intervene and pray for your neighbor. I mean, immediately you hear about it, and you just pray that whatever this person has done, and you didn't, didn't initially know who it was, that it might be thwarted. Then eventually you hear that now there have been injuries. Then you hear that two lives have been lost. And then you see a picture of a sweet kid that's 14 and 16. And someone even asked me um, as it was unfolding, they said, well, how old is your daughter? And I said, 16. He says, well, where is she in school? I said, well, we homeschool. But in that moment, I thought it, it's not unreasonable that I could have dropped off my daughter. And the last statement you say to your child is, hey, we're having pizza for dinner. What do you want with it? Are you saying them we're having leftover? And they say, oh, not again, right? The kids do. And that's your memory. And you're thinking you're going, to, you're going to see them again and you don't. Prayer is then when you see the need of a fellow man, when you see the need of your neighbor, that you intervene for them and you ask that the living God is the only one that can offer them hope and some sense of comfort and some sense of why is this happening? You pray for them. That's what you do. I mean, prayer is interceding for your brothers and sisters so that they can grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and they can be the people that God has designed them to be. Scripture tells us what? Pray for one another. I mean, prayer is us pleading for the souls of men that they would not face this God who is an unapproachable light. When we pray, I believe you have to understand that prayer is the opposite of human reliance. Because see, human reliance is what? It's the fact that I have the resources in myself. 
See, there is, in fact, a blessing, as I said before to you, there's a blessing in moral and physical bankruptcy. That is, we realize that there is nothing in myself. Judah, morally bankrupt. God is not going to save them because of this short period of reform. He's ultimately going to save them for his glory because there's a long history of what? Of disrepair amongst them. And then eventually they would be taken off by the Babylonians because after even this period of reform, they fall back to their ways again. So it's not because they're this great moral nation. At this time, it's not because they're physically capable. They're not. So there's a blessing that comes in bankruptcy if we recognize it. And prayer is just the opposite of human reliance. Our tendency is to rely on self, is it not? We all fight that battle. It is a reality. It's called the flesh. I mean, prayer is what Jonathan Edwards said, that it is the greatest thing a person can do to advance the kingdom of God. Prayer is what Calvin said, that we can do no greater thing than to love a man than to pray for them. That's what prayer is. It's opening one's heart before the Lord, asking for his favor, purify my thoughts and my mind and my motives. Prayer is trust. I mean, Hannah realized that when she opened her heart before the Lord and she poured it out before the Lord for a child. She was praying to him. Only he can open the womb. God is the one that closes and opens the womb, so I go to him. All the years of Mueller, when he prayed for those many, many orphans and the many stories that you hear because he sought the Lord in prayer, realizing that he has the resources. I mean, I realize this as well when my son, my youngest son, um, when we (laughs) decided that he was going to be our own. And, but he had a bone marrow issue and we thought there's going to be complications with it. And we sought the Lord in prayer and we had others. Will you pray for us and pray for him? And I'll never forget it. Then when we took him back to UCLA again to have it examined, they were like, well, we don't know what happened. It's gone. Well, guess what? Did I know what happened? I did. (laughs) The Lord intervened, but be careful I could have offered that same prayer, and today he could still be struggling with that issue, and God would still be God, amen? Amen. That's what we have to understand. But nonetheless, we do pray because we must go to the only one who can intervene in our lives, the only one that has the resources. Hezekiah is saying, God, I come to you, and we should learn from him. Do you pray? It's a question for you. Do you pray? Do you intervene? Do you plead? Do you cry out? Do you rest? Do you trust? And if you don't pray, then I would encourage you, perhaps better stated, admonish you, that you should be not as quick to criticize the paganism of the world and our world system because you are in some ways, as secular as they. So how so? Because in the world system, it is saying reliance, uh, resources, our abilities. Man is capable. A prayerless life is also a secular life. Because a prayerless life is a life that is saying, I can, of my own accord, my own abilities, my own resources, my own wisdom, make this work. A prayerless life, in one sense, Um, is a life that does not trust. It is a form of idolatry. It is. Why? Because it's still trust, but it's not a trust in the living God. It's a trust in your own abilities. And that's why we should be careful before we criticize the gods and systems of the world. See, prayer must involve this, though. Look at Verse 16, the reverence of those who trust, the reverence of those who trust. Notice verse 16, it says, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who's enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So there's a reverence that must be included in our prayers. I mean, think about David, First Chronicles 29, he says, Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. 
Daniel in, in chapter 2, he says, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. And even Jesus Christ, what was his example? Jesus Christ said, hallowed be thy what? Be thy name. Prayer must include reverence, and we see in verse 16, reverence. They acknowledge the one who can help. And there's a very intentional structure in this as well, and I want you to see it. And what does he say here? First, the Lord of hosts is what's communicated. So the Lord of hosts, and then he says, what? We can just show all of that. And this is how it unfolds. He recognizes God is the Lord of hosts. Then he says, you are the God of Israel. And at the center of it, he's saying, you are enthroned between or above even the cherubim. Then he comes back to this thought that you are the God of the nations. And then ultimately, he says, you are the maker of heaven and earth. So it's Lord of hosts, maker of heaven and earth. God of Israel, God of the nations. And you are the God that is enthroned above the cherubim. And this is his particular prayer of reverence. And what can we learn from this prayer of reverence? First, Lord of hosts. Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, he says what? He is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah comes to grips with his own sin, and he recognizes the sinfulness of his people. Why is he the Lord of hosts? Why is this even um, relevant for the particular situation? Because he's the Yahweh, he's the Almighty of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He is a battling God. He is a warrior God. And we need you now, warrior God, to fight for us in this circumstance. It's appropriate. He is saying, you are the king, the ultimate warrior king. I recognize you. Then notice what else he says, the God of Israel. So he makes it particularly, you are our God, Lord. Fight for us is what Hezekiah says. And then at the center of it, he says, you are in between, or you're in the midst of, or you're above the cherubim. This is a thought that we see throughout Isaiah, and Isaiah is communicating this great thought that God is with whom? Who is he with? He is with us. And so he's saying, yes, you are this great God who is the warrior God. You are a personal God, but Lord, you're in our midst. You're exalted. Look with me. Go with me to um, Exodus 25. Exodus 25. This idea of God in the cherubim and being in the the midst of his people, although he is still highly exalted. Exodus 25, 21, it says, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. There I'll meet with you, And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I've given you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So there's a picture. There he is. It's a lofty setting. But yet in between this cherubim, God is saying, I will speak to you. In this year, you would think, wait a minute. It's so lofty. It seems to be absolutely unapproachable. But he says, yes, I'm a God to be revered, to be awed, but yet I'm also God that's intimate. I mean, you should pause for a moment and think about that. And I can't make you be excited about something that I'm excited about, but I'm excited about the reality that the very God of the universe, that I can come to him anytime that I want and say, Father, here's my need. I can come to the very God of the universe, this one who is to be lauded and praised and recognized, and say, God, do you hear me? I can pray for a brother or a sister. I can pray for those families who lost their loved ones. I can pray for someone in their difficulty. I can confess my own sin and recognize I confess this to you, but I know you, the God who is in fact this lofty and great God, you are forgiving me because of the sufficient blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Look at Psalm 80, verse 1. Psalm 80, verse 1. What does it say there? It says, oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, send forth. So again, 
Here is this communication, and notice the language. Here it says, you are the God of Israel. You are the God of the nations. But the psalmist says, you are the shepherd of Israel. So now communicating what? Intimacy. Although you are God that is high and lifted up, you are nonetheless intimate with us. Then notice Psalm 99, verse 1. Psalm 99, verse 1 says, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake, it says. And notice this picture that's communicated there. And some of it is similar to the picture that we find in Isaiah 6, that the very foundations were trembling. It was shaking. But wait a minute. He is also the same God communicated in Psalm 80. that says, you're my shepherd. And you hear me. And you're with me. It's important for us to grasp both of these. That though he's high and lifted up, he is also God that is intimately acquainted with us. It's the thought that you would find in Isaiah 57 and 15, where it says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says, I live in a high and holy place. But he says, but also with those who are lowly and those who are contrite. So there is a condition that is here. Because it is just the opposite for those that are proud. I am against you. But if you're lowly in spirit and contrite in heart, God is saying, although I'm high and lifted up and I live forever and I dwell in this high and holy place, I'm also with you. What a great reality. I wish I could say more about the cherubim, but time is moving on. Notice what else he says. And go back to the text, verse 16. It says, you are the God. That's important. Here he uses the definite article because he could have simply said, behold, you are God. But he says, no, you are the God. Um, Isaiah 43, 25, Isaiah 51 and 12, and others that communicate, you are the God. Why is that important? Because what is he doing? He's denouncing the polytheism of the land and he's singling God out as the only one that is absolutely worthy of praise. Throughout this passage, we've been um, time and time again seeing the gods of the land, 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 the king and his gods. And what Hezekiah is saying, you are the God. Um, There is no other. This is important for Isaiah to prove this point throughout. So notice what else he says about God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. And this is really the point, if you to look at Isaiah 13 to 35, now the point is being realized here, all the nations are roaring against God. God is using the nations for his sovereign plan. And he's saying, ultimately, you are their God, whether they recognize it or not. Society today does not always recognize that. As a matter of fact, it's probably better said, they rarely, if ever, recognize that. But nonetheless, it's true. You can disrespect um, your superior, but nonetheless, they're still your superior. You cannot recognize an authority, but nonetheless, they're still the authority. And Hezekiah prays to the God of all the kingdoms. Why? Because remember, in context, all the other kingdoms have been wiped out. And he said, but you are the one who is their God. Come to our aid. Then notice what else he says. You alone made heaven and earth. So he brings us back to you are the creating God. Um, Psalm 96 and 5, it says, um, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Now, in the New Testament, this idea of God being the creative God Uh, is really fourfold, which you see that first, God made all things, God preserves all things, God controls all things, and God guides all things. So he is the one that is created out of nothing, then he preserves it, which we've talked about before, God's hand of providence preserving everything, then he controls it and he guides it towards his ultimate purposes. So we say to ourselves, if in fact we believe that fourfold um, pronouncement of God, why are we worrying? I mean, just, just pause for a moment. Uh, I've been at it for a minute anyway. I mean, why are we worrying? 
Because their theology says, I absolutely believe that God made all things. Is there anyone in this room believe that God made all things? Would you say amen? Okay, that, that's good. Um, would you also believe that God preserves all things? That is, he didn't make it and it falls apart. We absolutely believe that. Uh, we also recognize that he controls all things in their operation. We accept that and we say that he guides all things to their appointed destiny. But then we worry. And then we don't trust. And then we say, I'm too busy to pray because I have to get this done. And then we fall into a form of idolatry. If we believe it, then we have to trust it and rest in it. It's interesting, he says this, who made heaven and earth. If he's the God of Israel who made heaven and earth, it's also saying something else that's very important. There's a practical relevance to that truth. Yes, you made all things out of nothing. We believe that you created out of nothing. Uh, we don't believe in a theistic, even a theistic evolution we don't even believe in. But he also created... Spiritually, he created a people, and he's created a people for his own name. And what Hezekiah is saying, God, you are the God of Israel, but you're also the maker of heaven and earth. You've created us. Don't allow your spiritual creation to be destroyed. Be faithful, is what he says to him. God <clears throat> will be faithful. Notice verse 17. The request of those who trust. Notice his request, verse 17. Uh, what we see here, notice there are five imperatives that are here. And those are always curious. Like a, um, I remember many, many years ago asking when I was in seminary, it was in the study, I think it was exegesis of Deuteronomy, the use of an imperative directed towards God. Um, and this is just how the language is used. It doesn't mean that one, like God, an imperative towards us, that we must do it. It's simply a nuance of the language. It's just communicating the strength of the request is what he's saying here. And he has these five imperatives. And notice what they are inclined, hear, open, see, and listen. So God, turn your ear towards what is happening? Hear what is going on with your people. Open your eyes. And at times we see this in the psalmist where the psalmist would say, Lord, open your eyes and see uh, what I'm facing, the difficulty that is in front of me. And of course, it's not to say that God doesn't hear and that he's not listening and he doesn't see. He has to be reminded to open his eyes. It's this language that's communicating the sense of urgency and intimacy and says, God, I'm at my wit's end. There's no one else but you. But sometimes God has us to wait before he intervenes. Do you, you see that throughout. I think you would say in your own life, there have been most definitely times in your own life, have you not prayed and you wondered why am I waiting? Why isn't God intervening now? And I think sometimes, um, you know, I've talked to parents at times about being a, a, a special ops parent. And a special ops parent, and this is what I mean by it, the special ops parent is the one that always comes in to do what? Save the day. I mean, they suit up. They're like a Navy SEAL. They're a Green Beret, right? And it's like Johnny's in trouble. Mom suits up, save the day. Dad suits up, save the day. But what's the problem when you always save the day? What happens when they're 35? <laughs> Have you gotten a job yet? <laughs> and I'll, don't, don't be offended by that because I know sometimes people are hard times, right? So understand that. But I mean, where you don't look for one, where you still are playing your Xbox. What is it? What do they, what they, what they call? Is that what they call Xbox? Right. When you're playing your Xbox at 35 in the basement of your mother's home. On the sofa at that, right? And you ask her to vacuum after you, right? That's a problem. You say, wait a minute, what's wrong with that? Someone said. <laughs> and some of that, <laughs> uh, 
we need to change our next men's lesson here. <laughs> yeah. Because a part of it is what? They've intervened and intervened and intervened and intervened so no character is built. They're so used to mom or dad stepping in. I'm so glad that we serve a perfectly wise Heavenly Father, aren't you? Who at times allows us to sweat a bit. I'm going to see if you'll be driven to prayer. I'm going to take away all of your resources. I'm going to take away all of your answers. I may even take away your friends and the people who thought they would be there for you. And you'll find out that they're not there for you. There may even be some people intimate with you that I'm going to remove them as well. Even the psalmist says, my mother and my father, what? They've forsaken me. But the Lord will take me up. Even David at Ziklag, what happened to them there? It was not the best decision, but nonetheless, a decision was made. The people of God are taken away from Ziklag, and he comes back, and he says the people of God sought to stone David. And it says of David, but he encouraged himself in the Lord. God, in his wisdom, will at times bring us to that point where we say, I have nothing to do but to fall on my face before the living God and pray. And oh, had I been doing this earlier, maybe I would not be where I am now. And don't think, and this is, I go back to this um, prosperity perversion, that don't think, and I know you don't, that somehow if I just pray the right way, no, I don't pray those charismatic prayers, but my prayers are lofty and they're theological and they're wonderful. Then God will answer me. They're not those shallow prayers of the Copelands and the Osteens and those people. Because God is sovereign. And see, the question for you is, uh, are you seeking the answer or the one who gives the answer? I pray to you because you are the Lord of hosts. I pray to you because you are the God of Israel. I pray to you because you're the God that's between the cherubim. I pray to you because you're the God of the nations. I pray to you because you're the God who created heaven and earth. And even if my son still has a bone marrow issue, I pray to you. And, And if I never get that job opportunity, I pray to you. And even if I'm still castigated on my job and I'm misunderstood, I pray to you. And if I lose my very life, I pray to you. Because God is worthy. Because God is trustworthy. Because God is God. No, this is not a formula for fixing a situation. And we learn that. Notice verse 18 and 19. A couple more minutes with you. Verses 18 and 19. Um, 18 and 19, notice what it says. So they recognize the problem. So he's prayed this great prayer. He says, listen, they've reproached you. That is, they've insulted you. They have mocked you, the living God. And that's to show the contrast between these dead gods of the land. Then he says in verse 18, Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria, they've devastated everyone. They've thrown their gods into the fire. And this is what the Assyrians would do. When they would conquer land, they would deport them to remove them from what was familiar with them. And they would literally also just take all of their gods and burn them in the fire. Very interesting, because unlike the Romans, keep your gods. Polytheism is good. Keep your gods. Even stay in your land. But not the Assyrians. It was more to humiliate And he says, yes, they destroyed them because they're not God. You are the God. Then in verse 20, note, notice what he says. Now he comes back to the request and then really the purpose. Now he says, oh, Lord God, deliver us from the hand, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Here's the purpose of prayer even. In the end, God that you would be glorified. In the end, that you would be recognized. 
Egypt, the plagues. If you were to look at Exodus 10, like verses 1 and 2, um, the plagues come, the declaration is made, and why does he do it? Again, that God's name would be glorified. He removes his people from the land. Why? So that his name would be glorified. He drowns the Egyptians at the sea. Why? So that his name would be glorified. Why is he allowing this to happen to his people? So that his name would be glorified. So that all the other nations who served these other gods that had been defeated by the Assyrians would recognize Yahweh is distinct. He is different. And what we must do is live that way. We must live as if we believe that Yahweh is distinct. He is different. Difficulties only afford us the opportunity to show how much we trust this distinct God. How would people know our affection for God and our commitment to God? Yes, they might know it through everyday life, but isn't it more pronounced when we're faced with difficulty? Isn't it more pronounced when a doctor tells you, I have news for you? Now, what do I believe? Do I believe that he's in fact the God who's above the cherubim or not? What do I do when a loved one loses their life? What, what about our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who have been imprisoned and martyred for their faith? And they can, even in the final moments of their life, people can look at them and say, their God is different. It is not the gods of the land. Yahweh is different. See, that's an opportunity for us to live out the gospel before those who are around us. I pray that you would trust the Lord and whatever station in life God has you so that in the end, God alone would be glorified. Father, we thank you for your word you give us. Uh, grant us how to apply it. In Christ's name, amen.